Hi, I'm Eric Gurna of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. Please Speak Freely. I'm your host, Eric Gurna of Development Without Limits. This episode of Please Speak Freely is sponsored by the Schools at Washington Bridge Conference in Seattle, Washington, October 17th and 18th. In this episode, I got a chance to talk to Dr. Pedro Naguera of New York University. Dr. Naguera is well known in the field for advocating for uh, supports for young people who really need it most, for advocating for equity in education. And he's been working quite a bit in the area of extended learning time or expanded learning time. Uh, we talked about expanded learning time and the, the idea of, of requiring young people to participate in extra enrichment, but the importance of having a coherent and, and expansive vision for that experience. Uh, Dr. Naguera uh, really has a focus on social and emotional learning and what he calls the narrow view of education, which I would consider to be the dominant one currently or the broad view of education, which includes supports for social-emotional learning and other kinds of experiences. So uh, without any further ado, let's jump right into the conversation. I'm here with Dr. Pedro Naguera, who is a professor of education at New York University, here in in your office in New York University. And I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me on Please Speak Freely. Um, you work in the broader field of education, but you've had a special focus on after-school programs and, and sort of out-of-school time as well. Right. Uh, and um, you've, you've been a presence in the after-school field, I feel like, especially in the last couple of years, you've, you've keynoted several conferences. Um, and I'm wondering, what, what draws you to that corner of the field of education? Well, um, I think that, for me, the idea of finding ways to expand learning opportunities uh, for young people is an essential part of um, closing the achievement gap and uh, increasing the number of young people who are successful um, in life. Um, if you think about what separate one of the things that separates middle class kids from poor kids is the amount of time they get um, doing um, not just um, academics, but even other things, whether it be sports or music or theater, that enrich their lives and that um, give them uh, a, a larger sense of, of, of purpose and, and de- help them to develop as young people. And so finding ways to do that, provide high-quality after-school experiences for young people, I think is an essential part of just leveling the playing field and, and giving more poor kids opportunities that they often don't, don't receive. And that, that last part of what you said about lev- leveling the playing field, um, you know, just from, from the little bit that I'm familiar with your work, that's been a major focus for you is equity sure. um, in education. And um, I just recently had a conversation with Earl Phelan, who, who founded Bell, the Bell Program and Summer Advantage, and he's now at Reach Out and Read. And we were talking about the, the idea of working in education and youth development for social justice, that... Um, that many of us ended up in this field as sort of education slash activists. 
And what I notice is that after school, out of school time tends to draw a lot of those folks um, rather than people who, who, who have that, that framework, that social justice yeah. framework necessarily going into um, the regular school day. Right. Do, do you see that as well? Is, is I that do a see bias that. on I, my part? I think some of, there are many reasons for it. One is that the after school time um, you know, arena is often less structured mm-hmm. um, than the regular school day. So therefore there's more freedom, more flexibility to do interesting, creative things with kids that you might not be able to do during a typical school day. Mm-hmm. So I think many people who are, see themselves as activists are drawn to it for that reason. I think some of it is out of a genuine concern that um, when kids are not in school uh, during those after-school hours, that's often a time when they get in trouble. Right. And that we need to find ways to engage them in creative and constructive activities so that uh, we reduce the likelihood that they will get in trouble, get involved with gangs. Um, So there's a practical reason for it as well. Um, And then I think there are many people who like to work with young people but don't like the role of the teacher. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, just being placed in the role of the teacher sometimes sets you up to be the authority figure and to be in an antagonistic relationship with children. I mean, it shouldn't be that way, but in too many schools it is. And in after school, you get a chance to blur those roles, to be more the advocate, the guide, the mentor. And I think that many young people need that, and many um, people who work in this arena are drawn to that role and that kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. It, lately, with a lot of talk about expanded learning, there's been conversations about sort of blending after school and the school day more. And it seems to me like the, it's, it seems to be, a, to be a complicated way to say that the regular school day has a lot to learn from the approach of youth development, the approach of, of after school programs. Yeah. Um, do, do you see that? I mean, it seems to me like after school is really just the time of day. When it comes down to it. That's true. Um, Do you think that the regular school day should be more like you just described, more open, more... Well, in fact, uh, I would say that's the reason why the schools I'm working with right now in Newark, we're not doing after school. We're doing extended day. Mm -hmm. We're trying to do the kinds of enriched activities throughout the day, um, but give more time uh, rather than adding on after school. Because what worries me when we call it after school is that um, it's not going to be seen as important. Right. This is after. This is the extra uh, that you can opt in or out of. And whereas if you extend the learning time and say, no, we're going to build theater and music into that day, um, we're going to have more time for hands-on learning in the day, then you really start to transform education. And that's where I think um, what we have called the after-school arena can leverage this kind of change mm-hmm. in schools. But, if, if, but we have to be creative in the way we think about how to embed the kinds of knowledge and skills and learning experiences that kids have to have in those activities so that it's not, it's not merely play, although there's nothing wrong with play, right. but it's also learning that's taking place. So what worries me about that model is I start thinking about the – if that goes to scale, I start thinking about the, 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 the intention being lost. So if we start looking at extending the day and so you start looking at how the money's flowing and there's, there's you know, this debate – in Washington and in different states around extended day or expanded learning, should the money go to schools mm-hmm. and then go to partners from there? Should it go directly to partners to work with the schools? Should there be sort of equal footing between the, 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 the partner organization, if there's one involved, and the school principal? But where there's really good intention to do what you just described, right. then it's going gonna, it's gonna to do well. That sure. You're going to see the extended day be utilized for enrichment, for exploration, for project-based things. But if you take that to scale, 
and you, you look at the generations and generations of teachers and principals who have been raised with this uh, sort of older sc- old school schooling mentality, um, what I worry about is that what it can lead to is the school day basically swallowing after school, sure. getting the resources that after school now gets to do some more creative things and using it to do more of the same. No, I think that's a legitimate concern. But I, I would say the pitfalls are there on either direction, right? Mm-hmm. That is that um, – I'll give you an example. Newark, uh, when they had extra money, they, they had after-school programs in, in most, almost all of their schools. But in many of the schools, the kids who needed the, 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 mo- needed the help the most were not coming because it was voluntary. It was an option. Right. And they were opting not to come. Uh, and so whereas if that had been built into the day, they wouldn't have had that option. Now, I think your concern that it'll just become more of a bad thing is a legitimate concern because, you know, it has there has to be a very clear vision uh, behind it and it has to be rooted in uh, quality learning experiences. And many uh, traditional educational leaders don't know how to do that. And so I, I think there's a legitimate reason to be concerned about it. But I think that's the reason why we have to really kind of be very clear in setting up models and, 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 and exposing educators to what good quality looks like and why it's why this is why it an, an enriched learning environment it, what it looks like when you put that together um so that they know how to make use of the additional time otherwise you're right it'll just become more test prep and and more test prep and also maybe move more towards a, a dominant model in the field right now which is the the sort of flagship is usually referred to as as the kip model of of charter schools of of a sort of highly regimented um, school day that's aimed specifically at kids from economically poor communities. No. Um, and, you know, th- this leads to something that I was, was eager to talk to you about. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll back up a little bit. Um, I, I read an article recently on Gotham Schools website, and I love the name of this um, article. It's the, the title of the article is What Pedro Naguera Told Joel Klein and What Joel Klein Heard. And I thought, you know, that, that headline really caught my eye um, because, for one thing, it's just catchy, but also because it was like, okay, how are we being, we, and I'm associating myself with you here in an egotistic sort of way, but how are we now being twisted and, and sort of co-opted? Sure. Um, and what the article said, to, to summarize it, was that um, you had the opportunity to sit down with, with Chancellor Klein, he was chancellor at the time, um, and one of the things you talked about was um, suggesting that he visit a specific school in Brooklyn that you felt like really embodied a lot of the things that you see as being strong in, in, in schools. Um, extended day, focus on social and emotional learning, taking a, a more open sort of creative approach. And at the same time, they're serving um, economically poor kids, many homeless kids. Um, so, you know, it's, it's reaching the, the kinds of kids that, that you're emphasizing need to be um, – need to be really well served in order to address some of these equity issues, especially. Um, and, and Chancellor Klein visited the school, which must have made you feel pretty good, I, I, I would think. Sure. You know, you, the next day he visited the school. Um, and then he, he did a very interesting thing. He um, sort of trumpeted the school's praises and said, you know, Dr. Naguera, you know, I don't know if he said this in the article, but in, you know, his own process was Dr. Naguera sent me to this school. I went, I saw amazing things, and now I'm going to tell everybody they should go to this school. But what he emphasized about that they should go to the school for was 
the things that he was emphasizing anyhow around um, analyzing test data, around a very strong principle, and didn't emphasize the things that you thought were, were what you were sending right. him there for. What really got me interested was um, this notion that what you were trying to do, I think, was provide a shining example for a, a narrative that's or a model that's an alternative to the KIPP model or the highly regimented model. Is that, is that right? Am I yeah, right about I, your intentions? More, what I would call a more holistic approach to educating kids. And, um, and I think, you know, I'm not a – part of their strength is their very deliberate focus on each student and their right. learning needs and the fact that they do use data to monitor students to know who's making progress, who's not making progress. Mm-hmm. So I would but, – but all the other things are important as well. The right. social emotional learning, the extended learning opportunities, etc., and that's where I think um, people like Joel Klein have missed the, the 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 boat. Right? That is, they have this. What I I was framed the debate as the narrow view versus the broad view. I definitely associate myself with the broad view of what's needed. I think we have to respond to the health needs, the emotional, psychological needs of children. You can't focus only on the a- academic. And um, I would say the narrow view focuses almost exclusively on the academic and says that anything else is a distraction. And, um, you know, anybody's worked with, with kids generally, but poor kids especially knows that if you ignore those other needs, you tend to lose kids, mm-hmm. and especially as they get older. So. And with this notion of this shining example of this other model, that's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently because the, the kind of model that you just described, the broad view, that focuses on the whole whole student, whole child, whole, whole young person. Um, that's not – there's nowhere we point to and say this is what we mean, this chain of charter schools or this whole district. The, the, the side of um, – that is being um, really pushed by the Obama administration, by Arne Duncan and um, the, the Department of Education seems to be moving towards a, a – KIPP model of, of schooling or a charter school model of schooling, not even talking about what a charter school really is in terms of that. That's just about the structure. Mm-hmm. But the model of actual schooling that many charter schools seem to be embracing, there seems to be a very clear example that they can hold up and say, here's what it is. And you go to the school, you take a visit to the school and you see it. You see kids marching in a single file line. You see kids reciting things. You see kids making eye contact and doing all the things that they've been taught to do. And when I start talking about the the um, problems that I see with that model, the downside of that model, not that it's all bad and certainly not that it, it's because it's a charter school. When I start talking about the downside of it, the question that I get is, well, what's the alternative? I mean, isn't this better than than nothing or isn't this better than a failing school? What's the alternative? And I don't have a good answer. I don't have a good place to show them. So, you know, I would say um, I don't have any opposition to the KIPP model. Mm-hmm. First of all, I, I think that and because I'm in a lot of KIPP schools and they actually ha- vary quite a bit. You know, okay. I was at a uh, school in San Antonio, KIPP Aspire, mm-hmm. where they have an, the kids get out at five o'clock every day. They have music every day. They mm-hmm. have um, an extended recess. They they have a, a very enriched learning environment. They also do have the marching in the hallway. Now, I'm not a big fan of the of kids in line in the hallway and kids can't speak in the cafeteria. But when you go to schools that are in chaos <laughs> as the alternative, I'd say I prefer the kids in line than right. chaos. Right? right. Now, where we really should be is kids who know how to walk in the hallway on their own. They don't have to be regimented 
to um, or followed to go to the bathroom or you know they don't need police officers in the cafeteria. So the question is, how do we get there? Right. And there are schools like that that exist. And, uh, for example, the school I described, uh, PS28 to Joel Klein, is a school like that where kids can go to the restroom and you don't have to worry about them not returning, right? Uh, they go and come back. That's because the school's taken much more time to focus on the socialization of children mm. and, and preparing them to become responsible um, young people who can make decisions on their own. And I think that takes more work. And the reason why some schools fixate on the control is they don't either have the trust in the kids or they're not willing to put the work into getting kids to assume more responsibility for their own actions. But the fact is that they have to do that. And if they don't, they're selling kids short because as soon as kids leave school, they're making decisions on their own. Right. And so I think it's a mistake and uh, to, um, to not have that kind of trust in, in children. So it's relatively easy to see how to grow the more regimented model because you can, you can create manuals that say do this don't do that you know the, how the cafeteria works how the hallways work how ba- the bathroom break works how all that stuff works how to grow the more holistic model where young people are um learning self-discipline for themselves and learning how to be part of a community and engage that it seems to me like it's harder to create the uh, easily as they say replicable model for that is that something we should be striving for should we be looking for a way to replicate that or is there another way to grow that sort of work well i think um th- there are models of schools that do that montessori schools have been doing that for over 100 years mm-hmm. um you have um lots of progressive schools that succeed academically and offer that uh, kind of more um um you know holistic vision that you just described but um they function in isolation and people don't learn from them and people even when they do visit don't think, oh, my kids couldn't do that. My kids couldn't be trusted. So some of it is about having a vision for what's possible, but it's also rooted in a philosophy and, an, and a belief system about children, particularly about poor children. Many middle, It's interesting because many middle-class people don't want their kids to be regimented. They don't want their kids to be marched in the hallway, but believe poor kids need that, right? Um, and and that's what I, where I take issue. Um, I think that poor kids are capable of, you know, um, regulating themselves just as easily as middle class kids are, if given the proper um, supports um, to do so. Um, I'll give it. Uh, there's a school I'm working with in, in the Bronx, and um, they, you know, they're working with five year olds who they, they you know, they introduce blocks. Well, these were poor kids who never play with blocks they literally did not know how to play with blocks they were throwing blocks mm-hmm. at each other and and um, that's one way to they, play with blocks. they actually had to teach them how to play with blocks but yeah. now they play with blocks fine right so some kids require because of a lack of exposure they might require more support and more guidance on how to do something but it doesn't mean it can't be done why does there seem to be such a widespread almost giving up before you start to try sure. Um, about that the young people can do that. And because when, I, when I've talked to some people who have their kids in, pri- in wealthier private schools, um, you know, they describe the kind of model that's this holistic, right. treating every kid with respect, engaging in intellectual curiosity, and all of these things that are these big liberal arts ideas, liberal in the, in the academic sense of the right. word. You know? um, why is there such this reluctance to believe that all kids can can engage that way well that those beliefs about poor kids are deeply rooted in our culture right um 
this because we for for throughout history had this sense that what the poor and working class need is um, regimentation control. That's shown up in the way we um, run schools for poor kids, um, including parochial schools, which have often used corporal punishment, at least in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of it does come from uh, an attitude about the nature of poverty, as seeing poverty as really being caused by um, uh, behaviors that are um, uh, lend themselves to um, being less productive member of society. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a belief that the way you cre- help poor kids to become middle class is you you kind of imprint middle class values on them. And there's a book by um, a guy named Dave Whitman called Sweating the Small Stuff, mm-hmm. in which he argues that this is exactly what, what, what the successful schools like KIPP do. Is they, it, he calls it the new paternalism. They um, are basically imprinting middle class values on these children. Um, I take issue with that. I don't think that middle class people have any... A monopoly on values like uh, discipline and um, character and uh, integrity, et cetera. Um, I do think that kids who come from less structured home environments need more structure um, to learn uh, in their learning environments. And um, But that structure does not have to be regimentation or uh, fixation on control. It needs to be stable. It needs to be safe. It needs to have... Uh, clear guidance and clear guidelines about behavior. Mm-hmm. It needs to have um, um, discipline imposed when discipline is not, um, uh, when children themselves can't act it out on their own. Um, but it need not be overly punitive. And, um, and, and again, there are lots of examples out there of schools that have found that balance between firmness and compassion, between uh, finding a way to make the learning environment stimulating but at the same time structured. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I think it's a balance that we that is achievable, but it does come from a belief and a faith um, that it's possible. Mar- Maria Montessori had that faith in children, right. right? And she worked with the poorest children in the ghettos uh, of, of Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where the Montessori mo- method was developed. Uh, but when it was brought to the United States, it became almost exclusively available for affluent children. How does that work? <laughs> <laughs> tells you a lot about American right. beliefs. Uh, right. Because it's really an American issue. This is something that I feel like is um, – there's a reluctance to even talk about these things in in education circles at least, the youth development, after-school education circles. To When, when you when you start talking about the this highly regimented and often punitive model being imposed on kids from economically poor backgrounds more you know, disproportionately, there seems to be – there's a discomfort – um, that that comes with talking about it. That it's like it's almost like, uh, well, you know, we, we're here now. However, we got here, we're here now. Um, there, there, it, or maybe it's too theoretical, um, and people want strategies, people want tactics and tools, but they don't want to sort of. I shouldn't say they don't want to. I, I feel like there's a reluctance to get into the the the, the root causes of of this, um, and it's it's an interest of mine to sort of. Get shed light into the dark corners and start getting people who are practitioners to to think about well why do I do what I do mm-hmm. um, and honestly I'm not really sure where to go with it when it comes to this because it feels like it's so closely linked to to history of racism it's so clearly linked to um, all kinds of histories that it feels like it's hard to bring up when we're talking about after school programs well I think you're right I mean I think that and 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 it's rooted 
most profoundly in assumptions, assumptions mm. about um, the nature of people, particularly people who are different, right? Uh, whether that be different on the basis of race or language or culture or class. Um, and that's why I think that as educators of educators, we have to constantly find ways to challenge assumptions mm -hmm. uh, because it is the narrowing of those beliefs that often makes um, well-meaning educators part of the problem and um, because they deliver a form of education that um, it actually results in kids hating school. Mm -hmm. um, kids don't, most kids uh, don't like being controlled, don't, especially as they get older, don't like being regimented, don't like being force-fed information. Um, and if you think about it, many kids, the longer they're in school, the more they hate school and the more they hate learning. Um, school is bad for education, if you, could, if you think about it in a lot of ways. And uh, a lot of it is because of how school is done and, and, and the, the way in which the socialization occurs within school. We have so much emphasis on conformity within school. And kids who are nonconformist are always in trouble. Mm -hmm. um, so what we need to do is constantly uh, give educators the chance to reflect, to think about what they're doing, to question their assumptions, um, to think about how they learn and what they want for their children. And then ask, why am I not bringing that to my children? Um, because many educators are, you know, adopt a kind of schizophrenic view about what's good for them and their kids versus the students they teach. Mm -hmm. So I think it's the questioning and the reflection that, that helps. Um, but it needs to be guided. It needs to also include some real exposure to alternatives so that people can, can visualize a different way of going about doing the work they do. Mm -hmm. Many of the after-school programs that we work with are funded by 21st Century Community Learning Centers or, in certain states, state funding streams that are sort of very similar to 21st Century. And so they're aimed at working with um, uh, high levels of um, you know, free and reduced lunch eligibility in the schools and also um, aimed especially at working with schools that have been deemed struggling. Here in New York, it's CINE schools, schools in need of improvement, get extra points on the proposal. So there's a focus on after-school programs being in those schools. And what we've found um, is that many programs find themselves working in schools that uh, are struggling, the schools are struggling themselves. And so the after-school program um, feels the need to do academic support that often takes the form of remediation and it, it seems to me like they're almost trying to make up for right. the, what's not happening during the regular school day by doing maybe doing more of it but trying to do it better yeah. after school um, that's a difficult position to be in and oftentimes the, the program directors of these after school programs are you know just extremely well-meaning passionate about young people and equity and their and their community um, and struggling with what to do. do. Do you have any guidance for, for programs that are in the, those kinds of positions? Well, well I think, I mean, the, the, their desire to ensure that kids are learning, especially if it's not happening during the school day, is, is certainly understandable. Um, what I think they have to recognize is that an essential part of improving academic outcomes is changing the attitude of kids towards learning. Uh, if kids have become so turned off, that they basically have given up. Um, that's what we have to change. Well, how do you get people to not give up? Not just by pushing harder, but by enticing them into learning again. Right. You know, so using poetry or, or hip-hop to teach literacy, using debate to teach literacy, using music uh, to teach, um, I don't know, rhythm and, and to teach fractions, um, using um, robotics to teach, um, you know, certain principles in, in physics. I mean, these are things that... that 
are happening in after school programs and that are in fact changing attitudes about learning and change and, and, and when done well, furthering the skills and the knowledge kids need to do well academically. But it takes more um, knowledge and ex- and skill on the part of the teacher and the uh, the uh, and the educator mm-hmm. to do that um, than 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 many of those who provide these services often have. And there's also a, there's a big um, issue that that often comes up with those kinds of programs who want to really focus on creative expression, youth development, and enrichment, um, which is homework. Sure. So they're dealing with. They're, they're trying to create this environment of engagement after school and really focusing on all of the things you just mentioned. But yet, especially when it comes to the programs we work with in middle schools or high schools, um, these kids have hours of homework. And oftentimes the homework seems to be – to the after-school educator, it seems to be um, not the you know, most enlightened assignment let's say, or a rote sort of thing that they have to go through or not appropriate for the level of knowledge or skill of the student or whatever it is. And yet, home, you know, one of the things about after-school programs is that parents expect homework to, sure. to, be, to be done. Um, so, so we struggle with how to support those after-school educators to stay engaged and, and want, do what they want to do, but still, how do they deal with this homework issue? And the, I, I bring up homework, even though it's very specific, because it's the it's the trail that the regular school day leaves right. that that makes it very difficult for after school programs to fully embrace what you just described well i mean that's the reason why you know going back to our previous conversation why it it helps to have either the extended learning model um or at least to have um careful planning between the regular you know classroom teacher who's there from you know eight till three with the after school provider yeah. so that they're uh, they're complementing they're reinforcing um, they're not working at odds um, uh, you don't want to have the after school program simply become a homework center right uh, mm-hmm. ideally uh, because then you lose out on all the other opportunities at the same time um, if that's not going to happen then homework has to be uh, done in a different way you know homework only works uh, for kids if it's an extension of work that began in the classroom, um, there's a lot of meaningless homework that gets assigned, and um, and there's a lot of kids who have no one at home to help them with homework. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to find a strike a balance. I mean, kids can benefit from the additional time spent on learning activities, but uh, they would even benefit more if those activities were meaningful and they really did deepen their knowledge and understanding. And after school could be a place where that could occur, but that would require much more planning with the with the teachers. And, you know, many programs are, are sort of left in the position where they, they may hear all that, but they're, they're in the situation that they're in. Right. And they don't necessarily have the, the, the school wanting to work with them or the teachers wanting to partner with them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, we, we just we struggle with supporting those after-school educators because we have all these great activities we want them to try. And we've right. got these approaches similar to what you've described. And they say, yeah, but this is my situation. So, you know... How, and so we lose a lot of staff, I think, from those programs sure. who just feel frustrated. Right. Um, but success allows, often, not always, often allows people to be more innovative. Um, there's a program here in New York City. It's a, it's a, they, they, do, uh, they use hip-hop to do test prep, mm-hmm. and it's, they're getting great results with kids. Mm-hmm. So now schools are trying to get their kids into this program, and the kids like the program. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes a big difference when kids like something. 
So um, I, I think if they had initially just advertised, we're going to do use hip hop to do test prep, they probably wouldn't have gotten uh, many schools to work with them. But right. They kind of snuck it in and got the results, and 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 it's worked for them. So I think you you have to take some risk, um, but you also have to be effective advocates uh, for what you do and use evidence to show that it can work. I have, it has to be evidence. I have mixed feelings about the things like the hip-hop for test prep because I could totally see how it could be engaging and useful. And then at the same time, just with art in general, whether it's hip-hop or, or, or poetry or visual art or whatever it is, there's so much emphasis on using art to do something else, right. you know, use visual art to teach geometry, use music to teach fraction, use hip hop to teach test prep. Um, and doesn't that, doesn't that devalue the thing itself? Like, doesn't that, if you're, if you're using hip hop to do something else, doesn't that sort of say like hip hop, just doing hip hop for its own sake doesn't have the, enough, as much value? Or doing art perhaps, for its own perhaps. sake, not hip hop specifically. You know, we live in a world where people have to do some things, like yeah. take the test. They have to, do, you know, to graduate. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, we have to be honest with kids, and we have to that 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 you know, in life, there are going to be some things that you got to do that you know you may not like to do, but um, you know, like pay, taking these tests um, for as long as they remain the state law. Because the fact is that if they don't do well on those tests, there will be negative consequences for them. So, you know, we always are working under constraints. We're mm-hmm. working under limited budgets. We're working in facilities that are inadequate. We're working without enough time or without enough resources. And I think the real challenge always is how to be resourceful, how to do as good and effective a job as you can, even under suboptimal conditions. And um, I think it's that resourcefulness that we really want to cultivate in educators rather than a sense of helplessness and hopelessness that, oh, unless I can do it exactly the way I want to do it, then nothing could be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I hear that. It seems to me like you have a consistent focus in your work on the actual experience that young people have in in going through education, Mm -hmm. that it's not just about the, the systems and the structures and the way things are funded or even the larger inequities, but it's about the experience that individual young people have in their communities and in in their schools. So sort of putting aside the, the after school or school day dichotomy or extended day or expanded learning or all those things, what do you think needs to happen in, in our country, in our educational system to move towards the kind of holistic model that, that you've talked about? That's a good question. I mean, that's something I've been thinking about for a long time, is how do you get policymakers to understand it? You know, and what, what's troubling about it is they typically understand it for their kids. Right. <laughs> but so, it's, 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 so they can understand it. The, the, really is, the issue is how do they get to understand it for other kids? And how do they get? And and that is it means then we would have to stop thinking about education in a silo in this fragmented way. We'd have to think about a more integrated approach where we have schools working with with hospitals and clinics. We'd have to think about um, stronger ties between schools and nonprofits and community organizations. And and it would really help if policymakers um, created incentives and and in design policies that encourage those kinds of collaborations mm-hmm. in, um and and that's not happening on a, any large scale um it's happening in a few schools 
uh, isolated cases where the principals have forged those relationships, those partnerships. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not. It should be happening on a much larger uh, scale than it is right now. It's interesting because a lot of people hold up the Harlem Children's Zone as a model of this kind of integration. Right. The Obama administration has embraced that actually. Sure. Um, but they're not. They're not at all clear about what we what it would take to replicate that model and and to bring it to lots of more communities across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, in part because that's such an expensive program they've created there but many of the elements could be could be um developed elsewhere without at a fraction of the cost of what they're doing in 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 harlem right now Mm -hmm. and i think that's what we should be striving to do there's you know some people raise some issues around that when they're coming from more rural or sort of um less populated communities where the the opportunities for all those partnerships don't necessarily exist because the institutions don't exist or the organizations don't exist or sort of far-flung that's True to some degree, but in many rural communities, the school is the hub of social activity. Yeah. You know, um, Friday night football is the only thing happening on Friday night. So yeah. people come, uh, people vote in the school, people mm-hmm. look to the school for uh, you know information, mm-hmm. and so the school can be a place where we also locate services. Now, again, the school does. You'd have to augment the budget. You'd have to figure out how to get you know social workers to that school and health workers to the school but again that's why policymakers need to do this and don't just leave it to educators to figure it out because uh educators have too much on their plates already right that's definitely true at the same time we, we sit here in your office at the new york university school of education right um and i'm wondering what 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 is schools of education and teacher training programs what role do they play in that um in that larger vision well, I mean, there are. I mean, one of the things that we're trying to do here is to create schools that do exactly what I just described, that are mm-hmm. integrated, which mean then getting faculty from different schools working together, from social work, from psychology, working together on designing. Within the university. Within the university, mm-hmm. which often doesn't happen because universities are also fragmented right. and um, don't collaborate in those ways. So we're, we're, and there are some other universities, Boston College has had some schools like that that have that more integrated approach, which allows the university to integrate its Mm. academic programs to support those schools. So I think that that, you see there's a few examples, not not nearly enough, but um, that is the direction we should be moving in. And But the the role of the School of Education, um, the main role is to prepare teachers to to work in schools, right? Right, but I think we should be preparing teachers the way we prepare doctors. We should be preparing teachers by having faculty in schools Mm. with long-term relationships to those schools Mm -hmm. so that we're preparing teachers with real children in real schools. Okay, great. Want to shift gears, if you don't mind, just a little bit. Uh, For a young professional in the field who's starting out, whether they're thinking they're going to be a classroom teacher, they want to work in after school or some other aspect of the field, someone who has the social justice values that, that, that you have and the kind of approach to education that you've described, what would you suggest that they do? What do you suggest they look to or become a part of? Um, well, I think working in this field of after-school education, uh, um, working with young people, youth development, is an important one. And, and it's certainly an area where we can make a difference. This is the reason why I was drawn to this in the first place, is this desire to feel as though I was making a difference on the society I lived in. And I think education is just one of the areas where you can do that. The, I think the real question is trying to find an environment, find a space where you can be most effective. And, uh, and, and if you can't find the ideal space, then to try to find ways to make the space that you're in, that you can find, work for you. Uh, and that's where it goes back to what I said before about being resourceful. Um, 
you know, we work under constraints. We always have to figure out how far can we push those constraints, mm-hmm. um, push the limits of what's possible. And a lot of times what's holding us back is our imagination as much as anything, uh, our ability to imagine new ways of doing things um, that um, really enable us to be more effective and young people to be more um, critical thinkers. And, uh, and so I, I just encourage uh, people who enter this field not to allow the limits of the situation to limit their imagination. And I think that's a great place to wrap up. Dr. Pedro Naguera, thank you very much for um, speaking with me on Please Speak Freely. All right. All right. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of Please Speak Freely with Dr. Pedro Naguera. Tune in for the next episode of Please Speak Freely, where I'll talk with Karen Pittman, the president and CEO of the Forum for Youth Investment. Karen Pittman is an expert in positive youth development and has been someone who's really seen a lot of changes in the field over the years and has been a leading thinker in the field over the years. So I was very happy to talk with her, and I'll be happy to share the conversation with you. Mm-hmm.